0: Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Messius Plutarchus, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Cicero He was appointed Questor at a time when grain was scarce, and had the province of Sicily allotted to him where he annoyed people at first by compelling them to send grain to Rome. But afterwards, they found him careful, just and mild, and honored him beyond any governor they had ever had. Moreover, when large numbers of young men from Rome, of illustrious and noble families, were accused of lack of discipline and courage in the war, and sent up for trial to the praetor of Sicily, Cicero pleaded their cause brilliantly and won the day. While he was journeying to Rome, then, highly elated over these successes, he had a laughable experience, as he tells us. In Campania, namely, he fell in with an eminent man whom he deemed his friend, and asked him what the Romans were saying and thinking about his achievements, supposing that he had filled the whole city with the name and fame of them. But his friend said, "'Where, pray, have you been, Cicero, all this time?' At that time, then, as he tells us, he was altogether disheartened, seeing that the story of his doings had sunk into the city as into a bottomless sea, without any visible effect upon his reputation. But afterwards he reasoned with himself and abated much of his ambition, convinced that the fame towards which he was emulously struggling was a thing that knew no bounds and had no tangible limit. However, his excessive delight in the praise of others and his too passionate desire for glory remained with him until the very end, and very often confounded his saner reasonings. And now that he was engaging in public life with greater ardor, he considered it a shameful thing that, while craftsmen, using vessels and instruments that are lifeless, know the name and place and capacity of every one of them, the statesmen, on the contrary, whose instruments for carrying out public measures are men, should be indifferent and careless about knowing his fellow citizens. Wherefore, he not only accustomed himself to remember their names, but also learned to know the quarter of the city in which every notable person dwelt, where he owned a country place, what friends he had, and what neighbors, so that whatever road in Italy Cicero traveled, it was easy for him to name and point out the estates and villas of his friends. His property, though sufficient to meet his expenses, was nevertheless small, and therefore men wondered that he would accept neither fees nor gifts for his services as advocate, and above all, when he undertook the prosecution of Veres. This man, who had been praetor of Sicily, and whom the Sicilians prosecuted for many villainous acts, Cicero convicted, not by speaking, but, in a way, by actually not speaking. For the praetors favored varies, and by many obstacles and delays had put off the case until the very last day, since it was clear that a day's time would not be enough for the speeches of the advocates, and so the trial would not be finished. But Cicero rose and said, there was no need of speeches and then brought up and examined his witnesses and bade the jurors cast their votes. Nevertheless, many witty sayings of his in connection with this trial are on record. For instance, veris is the Roman word for a castrated porker. When, accordingly, a freedman named Sicilius, who was suspected of Jewish practices, wanted to thrust aside the Sicilian accusers and denounce veris himself, Cicero said, what has it do to do with the Varys? Moreover, Varys had a young son, who had the name of lending himself to base practices. Accordingly, when Cicero was reviled by Varys for effeminacy, you ought, said he, to revile your sons at home. And again, the orator Hortensius did not venture to plead the cause of Varys directly, but was persuaded to appear for him at the assessment of the fine and received an ivory sphinx as his reward. And, when Cicero made some oblique reference to him, and Hortensius declared that he had no skill in solving riddles. And yet, said Cicero, thou hast the sphinx at thy house. When Verres had thus been convicted, Cicero assessed his fine at 750,000 denarii, and was therefore accused of having been bribed to make the fine a low one. The Sicilians, however, were grateful to him, and when he was idle, brought him from their island all sorts of livestock and produce. From these, he derived no personal profit, but used the generosity of the islanders only to lower the price of provisions. He owned a pleasant country seat at Arpinum, and had a farm near Naples, and another near Pompeii, both small. His wife Terentia brought him, besides, a dowry of a hundred thousand denarii, and he received a bequest which amounted to 90,000. From these he lived, in a generous and at the same time modest manner, with the Greek and Roman men of letters who were his associates. He rarely, if ever, came to table before sunset, not so much on account of business as because his stomach kept him in poor health. In other ways, too, he was exact and over-scrupulous in the care of his body, so that he actually took a set number of rubbings and walks. By carefully managing his health in this way, he kept it free from sickness and able to meet the demands of many great struggles and toils. The house which had been his father's he made over to his brother, and dwelt himself near the Palatine Hill, in order that those who came to pay their court to him might not have the trouble of a long walk. And men came to his house every day to pay him court. No fewer than came to Crassus for his wealth, or to Pompey because of his influence with the soldiery. And these were the two greatest men among the Romans, and the most admired. Nay, Pompey actually paid court to Cicero, and Cicero's political efforts contributed much towards Pompey's power and fame. Although many men of importance stood for the praetorship, along with Cicero, he was appointed first of them all, and men thought that he managed the cases which came before him with integrity and fairness. It is said, too, that Licinius master a man who had great power in the city on his own account, and also enjoyed the help of Crassus, was tried before Cicero for fraud, and that, relying upon his influence and the efforts made in his behalf, he went off home while the jurors were still voting, hastily trimmed his hair and put on a white toga in the belief that he had been acquitted and was going forth again to the forum. But Crassus met him at the house door and told him that he had been convicted unanimously, whereupon he turned back, lay down upon his bed, and died. And the case brought Cicero the reputation of having been a scrupulous presiding officer. Again, there was Vicinius, a man who had a harsh manner, and one which showed contempt for the magistrates before whom he pleaded. His neck also was covered with swellings. As this man once stood at Cicero's tribunal, and made some request of him, Cicero did not grant it at once, but took a long time for deliberation, whereupon Vicinius said that he himself would not have stuck at the matter had he been praetor. At this, Cicero turned upon him and said, But I have not the neck that you have. Two or three days before his term of office expired, Manilius was brought before him on a charge of fraudulent accounting. This Manilius had the goodwill and eager support of the people, since it was thought that he was prosecuted on Pompey's account, being a friend of his. On his demanding several days in which to make his defense, Cicero granted him only one, and that the next. And the people were indignant because it was customary for the praetor to grant ten days at least to the accused. And when the tribunes brought Cicero to the rostra and denounced him, he begged for a hearing, and then said that he had always treated defendants, so far as the laws allowed, with clemency and kindness, and thought it an unfortunate thing that Manilius should not have this advantage. Wherefore, since only one day was left to his disposal as praetor, He had purposely set this day for the trial, and surely it was not the part of one who wished to help Manilius to defer it to another preacher's term. These words produced a wonderful change in the feelings of the people, and with many expressions of approval they begged Cicero to assume the defense of Manilius. This he willingly consented to do, chiefly for the sake of Pompey, who was absent, and once more mounting the rostra, harangued the people anew, vigorously attacking the oligarchical party and those who were jealous of Pompey. Yet he was advanced to the consulship, no less by the aristocrats than by the common people, and for the interests of the city, both parties seconding his efforts for the following reasons. The change which Sulla had made in the constitution at first appeared absurd, but now it seemed to the majority owing to lapse of time and their familiarity with it, to afford at last a kind of settlement which was not to be despised. There were those, however, who sought to agitate and change the existing status for the sake of their own gain, and not for the best interests of the state, while Pompey was still carrying on war with the kings in Pontus and Armenia, and there was no power in Rome which was able to cope with the revolutionaries. These had for their chief a man of bold, enterprising, and versatile character, Lucius Catiline, who, in addition to other great crimes, had once been accused of deflowering his own daughter and of killing his own brother, and fearing prosecution for this murder, he persuaded Sulla to put his brother's name as though he were still alive in the list of those who were to be put to death under proscription. Taking this man, then, as their leader, The miscreants gave various pledges to one another, one of which was the sacrifice of a man and the tasting of his flesh. Moreover, Catiline had corrupted a large part of the young men in the city, supplying each of them continually with amusements, banquets, and amours, and furnishing without stint the money to spend on these things. Besides, all Etruria was roused to revolt, as well as most of Sizzlepine Gaul, And Rome was most dangerously disposed towards change, on account of the irregularity in the distribution of property, since men of the highest reputation and spirit had beggared themselves on shows, feasts, pursuit of office, and buildings, and riches had streamed into the coffers of low-born and mean men, so that matters needed only a slight impulse to disturb them and it was in the power of any bold man to overthrow the Commonwealth, which of itself was in a diseased condition. However, Catiline wished to obtain first a strong base of operations, and therefore sued for the consulship. And he had bright hopes that he would share the consulship with Caius Antonius, a man who, of himself, would probably not take the lead either for good or for bad, but would add strength to another who took the lead. Most of the better class of citizens were aware of this, and therefore put forward Cicero for the consulship. And as the people readily accepted him, Catiline was defeated, and Cicero and Caius Antonius were elected. And yet, Cicero was the only one of the candidates who was the son not of a senator, but of a knight. The schemes of Catiline were still to remain concealed from the multitude, but great preliminary struggles awaited the consulship of Cicero. For, in the first place, those who were prevented from holding office by the laws of Sulla, and they were neither few nor weak, sued for offices and tried to win the favor of the people, making many charges against the tyranny of Sulla, which were just and true indeed but disturbing the government at an improper and unseasonable time. And, in the second place, the tribunes were introducing laws to the same purpose, appointing a commission of ten men with unlimited powers, to whom was committed, as supreme masters of all Italy, of all Syria, and of all the territories which Pompey had lately added to the empire, the right to sell the public lands, to try whom they pleased, to send into exile, to settle cities, to take monies from the public treasury, and to levy and maintain as many soldiers as they wanted. Therefore, many of the prominent men also were in favor of the law, and foremost among them Antonius, the colleague of Cicero, who expected to be one of the ten. It was thought also that he knew about the conspiracy of Catiline, and was not averse to it, owing to the magnitude of his debt and this was what gave most alarm to the nobles. This alarm Cicero first sought to allay by getting the province of Macedonia voted to his colleague, while he himself declined the proffered province of Gaul. And by this favor, he induced Antonius, like a hired actor, to play the second role to him in defense of their country. Then, as soon as Antonius had been caught and was tractable, Cicero opposed himself with more courage to the innovators, Accordingly, he denounced the proposed law in the Senate at great length, and so terrified the very promoters of it that they had no reply to make to him. And when they made a second attempt, and after full preparation summoned the consuls to appear before the people, Cicero had not the slightest fear, but biding the Senate follow him and leading the way, he not only got the law rejected, but also induced the tribunes to desist from the rest of their measures. So overpowered were they by his eloquence. For this man, beyond all others, showed the Romans how great a charm eloquence adds to the right, and that justice is invincible if it is correctly put in words, and that it behooves the careful statesman always in his acts to choose the right instead of the agreeable, and in his words, to take away all vexatious features from what is advantageous. A proof of the charm of his discourse may be found in an incident of his consulship connected with the public spectacles. In earlier times, it seems, the men of the equestrian order were mingled with the multitudes in the theatres and saw the spectacles along with the people, seated as chance would have it. Marcus Otho was the first to separate in point of honour the knights from the rest of the citizens, which he did when he was praetor, and gave them a particular place of their own at the spectacles which they still retain. The people took this as a mark of dishonor to themselves, and when Otho appeared in the theatre, they hissed him insultingly, while the knights received him with loud applause. The people renewed and increased their hisses, and then the knights their applause. After this, they turned upon one another with reviling words, and disorder reigned in the theatre. When Cicero heard of this, he came and summoned the people to the temple of Bologna, where he rebuked and exhorted them, whereupon they went back again to the theatre and applauded Otho loudly, and vied with the knights in showing him honour and esteem. But Catiline and his fellow conspirators, who at first were cowed and terrified, began once more to take courage, and assembling themselves together, exhorted one another to take matters in hand more boldly before Pompey came back, and he was said to be now returning with his army. It was the old soldiers of Sulla, however, who were most of all urging Catiline on to action. These were to be found in all parts of Italy, but the greatest numbers and the most warlike of them had been scattered among the cities of Etruria, and were again dreaming of robbing and plundering the wealth that lay ready to hand. These men, I say, with Menlius for a leader, one of the men who had served with distinction under Sulla, associated themselves with Catiline, and came to Rome to take part in the consular elections. For Catiline was again a candidate for the consulship, and had determined to kill Cicero in the very tumult of the elections. Moreover, even the heavenly powers seemed, by earthquakes and thunderbolts and apparitions, to foreshow what was coming to pass. And there were also human testimonies which were true, indeed, but not sufficient for the conviction of a man of reputation and great power like Catiline. For this reason, Cicero postponed the day of the elections, and summoning Catiline to the Senate, examined him concerning what was reported. But Catiline, thinking that there were many in the Senate who were desirous of a revolution, and at the same time making a display of himself to the conspirators, gave Cicero the answer of a madman, What dreadful thing, pray, said he, am I doing, if, when there are two bodies, one lean and wasted, but with a head, and the other headless, but strong and large, I myself become a head for this. Since this riddle of Catalines referred to the senate and the people, Cicero was all the more alarmed and he wore a breastplate when all the nobles and many of the young men escorted him from his house to the compass marshes. Moreover, he purposely allowed the spectators to get a glimpse of his breastplate by losing his tunic from his shoulders, thus showing them his peril. The people were incensed and rallied about him. And finally, when they voted, they rejected Catiline once more and elected Selenus and Morena, Consuls. Not long after this, when Catiline's soldiers in Etruria were already assembling and forming into companies, and when the day set for their attack was near, there came to the house of Cicero at midnight men who were the leading and most powerful Romans Marcus Crassus, Marcus Marcellus, and Scipio Metellus. And knocking at the door and summoning the doorkeeper, they bade him wake Cicero and tell him they were there. Their business was what I shall now relate. After Crassus had dined, his doorkeeper handed him some letters, which an unknown man had brought. They were addressed to different persons, and one, which had no signature, was for Crassus himself. Crassus read this letter only, and since its contents told him that there was to be much bloodshed caused by Catiline, and advised him to escape secretly from the city, he did not open the rest but came at once to Cicero, terrified by the danger, and seeking to free himself somewhat from charges that had been made against him on account of his friendship for Catiline. Cicero accordingly, after deliberation, convened the Senate at break of day, and carrying the letters thither, gave them to the persons to whom they had been sent, with orders to read them aloud. All the letters alike were found to tell of a plot." And when also Quintus Arius, a man of Praetorian dignity, brought word of the soldiers who were being mustered into companies in Etruria, and Manlius was reported to be hovering about the cities there with a large force, in constant expectation of some news from Rome, the Senate passed a decree that matters should be put in the hands of the consuls, who were to accept the charge and manage as best as they knew how for the preservation of the city. Now, The Senate is not wont to do this often, but only when it fears some great danger. On receiving this power, Cicero entrusted matters outside to Quintus Metellus, while he himself kept the city in hand, and daily went forth, attended by so large a bodyguard, that a great part of the forum was occupied when he entered it with his escort. Thereupon, Catiline, no longer able to endure the delay, resolved to hasten forth to Menlius and his army, and ordered Marcius and Cethegus to take their swords and go early in the morning to the house of Cicero, on pretense of paying him their respects, and there to fall upon him and dispatch him. This scheme Fulvia, a woman of high rank, made known to Cicero, coming to him by night and urging him to be on his guard against cethegus and his companion. The men came at break of day, And when they were prevented from entering, they were incensed and made an outcry at the door, which made them the more suspected. Then, Cicero went forth and summoned the Senate to the Temple of Jupiter Stasius, or Stator, as the Romans say, which was situated at the beginning of the Via Sacra, as you go up to the Palatine Hill. Thither, Catiline also came with the rest, in order to make his defense. No senator, however, would sit with him but all moved away from the bench where he was. And when he began to speak, he was interrupted by outcries. And at last, Cicero rose and ordered him to depart from the city, saying that, since one of them did his work with words and the other with arms, the city wall must needs lie between them. Catiline, accordingly, left the city at once with three hundred armed followers, assumed the fasces and axes as though he were a magistrate, raised standards, and marched to join Manlius. And since about 20,000 men altogether had been collected, he marched round the various cities, endeavoring to persuade them to revolt, so that there was now open war, and Antonius was sent off to fight it out.